We thought we knew what we'd be talking about today at five o'clock yesterday, and then the whole world changed. The news stories that popped last night were a week's worth of news, as Laura said later. So we got plenty to discuss on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Leila Tassi on this, the first day of March. Laura Davios, the Ohio Attorney General, might have had the biggest save of the year in catching something involving the investigation for HB6. He might have stopped the people who were indicted recently from getting out of jail free. What happened? Yeah, this is pretty incredible. And it was one of those stories that dropped late Thursday. And we have recently reported that the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio was going to start up their investigation again into House Bill 6, into Sam Randazzo, their former uh, chief, and to the first energy executives who were recently indicted in Summit County. And this seemed like, okay, the uh, the Southern District a federal prosecutor's office had lifted any restriction on investigation. So let's go do this. But what AG Yost sent last night basically says, hey, I found this spot in the Ohio Revised Code in the law that says if you force someone to testify, you subpoena them and produce documents, then they will be have what is called transactional immunity. And you wouldn't be able to prosecute them for whatever they said and whatever they produced in the PUCO hearing. So he says that if PUCO were to enforce the subpoenas recording, uh, requiring Sam Randazzo, Chuck Jones, or Michael Dowling to testify or produce these documents, they could get off their criminal proceedings. Yeah, this would have been a disaster because everybody's been waiting for these guys to be held to account. They funded this bribery scheme, which the utilities already admitted to, and the minute they would be brought in to be questioned, they don't. you can't charge them anymore, and Yost caught that. The conspiracy theorist in me wonders, because the PUCO has been so much in the pocket of First Energy, of Chuck Jones, of Dowling, you think they did that intentionally? I mean, I wouldn't put it past them. We've been waiting for three and a half years for these indictments. They finally come, not from federal court, but from... Um, you know, state court. So I don't know what's going on in the background for all of these things. But, the way that this is happening is weird. But think about it, right? They these they have all worked cozily together. The money that changed hands between mm-hmm. all these guys. I mean, Randazzo was the head of the PUCO. Right. And the minute the PUCO interviewed him, they'd all get out of jail free. Chuck Jones and Dowling would have loved being able to appear before him to talk because then they don't wear their orange jumpsuits. So right. I don't know. And- I, I mean, the well, shouldn't the PUCO know this? If you're the PUCO, isn't this your business? Aren't you supposed to be expert on the law pertaining to you? How could they have screwed this up so badly? Which raises the question, were they in bed with them and Yost did the save? Way to go, Dave Yost. I know. I love his language of this letter that says the language of RC 4903 appears to grant transactional immunity. Like this is the state attorney general and he's not 100 percent clear on this. So, you know, he's just acting what he says out of caution. And he says they can keep investigating this not to subpoena those three people. But you're right. It, it feels like this could have 
just skirted under and then too late we would have been like oh my gosh the biggest fish in this investigation just swam away well when does the PUCO ever be accountable I mean they haven't been accountable ever throughout this thing they are behind the biggest scam that we've ever seen their top guy was the one getting bribes right so they should be accountable somebody should ask them how could you right. have not known this and how could not- you endanger the criminal prosecution of your former chairman Obviously, we're talking about HB6 in this specific case, but there were so many times when we looked at that Sam Randazzo indictment that he was, you know, there was payoffs back and forth about allowing rate increases that got sent on to all of Ohioans paying these bills so that, you know, Randazzo, according to the prosecutors, could get a big paycheck. So we're, this is very focused on this one investigation, First Energy, $60 million in bribes. But this was happening over and over and over again. So when you are being suspicious of the PUCO, I totally get it. They've never been sticking up for Ohioans. They are in the pocket of all the different gas and oil companies and energy companies in the state. And they are fishy. And But yeah. we're stopping it right now. The statement from the Ohio Consumers Council said, we cannot in good conscience push forward on this investigation. The OCC is not giving up on spite for answers for consumers, but you got to pull back to avoid interfering with the active criminal cases. I wish we would get some kind of constitutional amendment going that just got rid of the PUCO and created a citizen-based agency to see through this. This is a, we all pay huge amounts of money to utilities. This commission is supposed to represent us and they're not representing us. They're an abject failure every time you turn the page. And this is the latest example. You just wonder if you got into their email if they knew about this, if, right. if there was some paper trail that shows that our PUCO continues to do the wrong thing, this should not have come this close. It shouldn't take the attorney general to be, whoa, 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 what are you doing? He's the only one that's doing the right thing. He's the one that brought him to justice. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Lordstown Motors story has been a long journey, always carrying a big cloud about it. And now we have clear evidence that much of it was a sham. Surprise, surprise. Layla, what did the Securities and Exchange Commission announce Thursday that makes clear Lordstown Motors was dishonest in its claims as it tried to lure investors? The SEC is charging Lordstown Motors with misleading investors and customers about its all-electric truck, the Endurance. In a statement yesterday, the agency said Lordstown exaggerated the number of pre-orders it had for the truck and how quickly they could get it to customers. These were also observations that were made in 2021 by the Hindenburg Research Investment Firm, which led to the SEC investigation. So according to the SEC, Lordstown Motors claimed it had more than 100,000 pre-orders for the Endurance, but these were orders that were non-binding, and most of the orders came from companies that didn't operate fleets or intend to buy the truck for their own use. The SEC, SEC also said Lordstown Motors failed to account for production delays that kept pushing back the launch of the endurance truck, which the company had originally said would be in 2020. It wasn't until November of 2022 that the company could start sending out the trucks. And even then, just 18 were delivered to customers by May of 2023. The SEC says Lordstown Motors, without admitting or denying any of the findings, 
has agreed to a cease and desist order and has agreed to pay $25.5 million, which would be paid to the parties that are now suing Lordstown Motors. Yeah, I we talked about this so many times on this podcast, and at every juncture we've talked about that this stinks. All, going all the way back to the beginning, this seemed like a put-up job from the beginning to help Donald Trump in his re-election after the auto plant closed. Remember, they brought one to the White House lawn, and Rob Portman was there. That's before one caught on fire, I think. Yeah, right, that's what I remember yeah, about right. this. <laughs> and, and, and every time you looked at it, they, it, it seemed fake. Like They said, oh, we got all these orders, and then it turned out they weren't really orders. Orders. And then they yeah. said they had this money and then they didn't have the money. They thought they had a partner, but when the partner looked closely at him, they said, this isn't for real. And it, it seems like today it was never for real, that it never had any traction. It was all kind of phony baloney. And clearly now they agree. There's no debating. They're saying we're not admitting wrongdoing, but they, they agreed to pay the money. They misled everybody. Does, right. Doesn't it feel a little bit like Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, right. But you do wonder how that how it took so long. I mean, this seemed to almost anybody that looked at it from the start, like total BS. Nobody bought this. And yet it took how many years? It's, it's you know, eight years later, we're still talking about the thing. Or right, uh, four right. years later, we're still talking about the thing. And I mean, since the investigation began, they, they ousted their CEO. They sued the company. It sold its manufacturing plant, too. They filed for bankruptcy. I mean, it's 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 just been falling apart all around them. Um, so this, this isn't su- very surprising. It's not surprising. It's just nice to get final confirmation. Yes, it was a scam. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, big story number three of five. Notre Dame College dropped the bombshell late Thursday. It's closing. Lisa, what is going on? Yeah, this is kind of, well, it didn't really come out of the blue, but the statement was pretty jarring nonetheless. So Notre Dame College, which is on Green Road in South Euclid, is closing for good at the end of the spring semester. Now, this comes after months of speculation and talk about a possible merger with Cleveland State University. Interim President John Smetanka says they're doing all they can to make it a smooth transition for their students. They've partnered with nine nearby colleges and universities for transferring students and making sure all their credits go with them or through what they call the Teach Out program. And some of these colleges include John Carroll, Hiram College, Kent State, uh, Baldwin Wallace, and others. So they'll also be holding a fair on Wednesday, March 13th at their Keller Gymnasium because they want to work one-on-one with students to get them, you know, to new, you know, so they don't have a break in their studies. They're also going to provide HR support for their faculty and staff. Notre Dame College, it's a pretty little campus. It was established in 1922 as a women's Roman Catholic college, but it went co-ed in 2001. And they said in a statement yesterday that they had a lot of challenges, growing costs, declining enrollment, significant debt, a shrinking pool of college-age students, and they tried to address all of this for several years. They had fundraising campaigns, they reached out to big donors, they used COVID money, and they approached two higher education institutions for a merger or an acquisition. None of that happened in eventually it was not enough to close their financial gap. Yeah, it, we had all thought that it was, like you said, it was CSU would assume them. It would give them a branch campus in the suburbs, which they could always use. It's a nice, pretty place. It's not huge, but it's in a prime, pretty easy to get to prime location. Uh, but then done. I, I just, I wonder what this means 
for small colleges everywhere. You saw the list of colleges that are willing to take the students, mm-hmm. but are all of them threatened? I mean, the Ohio States and the and the Cleveland States are probably good to go, although Cleveland State's suffering a bit. But these smaller colleges are facing an uphill battle, as we've discussed, shrinking number of people to go. Can they all survive? And I'm a little worried because one of the nine institutions they partnered with was Ursuline College, which is out off Assam. I think it's east of here. And that's a small little college that I think that might be in a precarious situation at some point as well. Yeah, there's just not enough students to go around and and they can't survive. So I wonder what happens to that piece of land. You're familiar with it. You live not far from it. It is prime. It is. And they've got, it's not a big campus, but yeah, it's, it's prime property. It's got a beautiful big brick building. I don't know if it's their main building or what. So yeah, I think South Euclid's going to say, what are we going to do with this big piece of property? They'll want to turn it into jobs, whereas the residents might want to see something else. We had that big fight when they made the Walmart. There were a lot of people that wanted to turn that golf course into a park and it's a Walmart. You're listening to Today in Ohio. It's not $2 billion, but airlines have stepped up to pay for a nice piece of Cleveland's big airport plans. What did the airlines agree to on the path to a $2 billion overhaul of Cleveland Hopkins, Laura? Well, just... To be clear, they are now using $3 billion as the estimate for the decade-long project because when you're talking about that much money, why don't you just throw another billion on the table? And Yeah, when and, did that happen? I when don't did know. It, it went from one to two, and we marveled. Like, wow, went from one to two. When did it go to three? A three was the first time I've seen that was yesterday. 2.9 <laughs> was in the, the story from November. I think the longer they talk about this, the more the price goes up. And I mean, I, I understand inflation is a real thing and for you know things get more expensive but also they've been planning to start this in 2025 or construction in 2026 they should know that so hopefully this stays at 3 billion but right now we're only talking about 175 million dollars that the airlines have agreed to this and this is the very first phase of the very first phase and it's mostly planning there will be some demolition of the Sheraton Cleveland Airport Hotel that's going to happen this year turned into parking. Probably knowing Cleveland, it's just going to be surface parking because that's what they tend to do. They're also doing what they call program definition. And that encompasses cost estimates, the benefits of renovation versus replacement. I would have thought they'd already agreed on that. And then minimizing the burden on passengers because the whole point of this project is to make the airport better suited for the local passengers who are making up the bulk of the people who use the airport. And it's not the pass-through that it used to be when we had a hub. So they need more space for ticketing, more drop-off, more security screening. If anyone's been stuck in a long line, you know, at 6 a.m. on a on a Friday, they, you know, they need more security sp- um, space. But that is not figured out how they're going to pay for all that yet. Yeah, I mean, this is a small, small piece, but it is something they've got to whittle it away piece by piece by piece. Uh, although getting to three billion is certainly harder than getting to two billion. Uh, we'll have to see what they come up with when the planning is done. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We broke the news a few weeks ago that the Cleveland School CEO had clumsily killed the program funded by $20 million in Amazon money from Mackenzie Scott. We got action. What very fuzzy news broke late Thursday, Layla? Well, Cleveland schools announced that CEO Warren Morgan had decided that he will be relaunching 
the Get More Opportunities program, which had been funded with that $20 million gift from Mackenzie Scott. This was money that Morgan's predecessor, Eric Gordon, had set aside for enrichment opportunities for students that they wouldn't really get otherwise. These are like once-in-a-lifetime travel opportunities or visits to college campuses or seed money to launch their own neighborhood improvement project or programs to benefit their school. Gordon had set up a student committee that was... uh, Their role was accepting applications and making decisions about grant awards during this five-year period when that money was to be spent. But then Morgan had come in as CEO, and he had quietly asked the school board to take back that remaining $16 million that was unspent, and so it could be reappropriated to help fill a $168 million budget gap that the district faced on account of the end of federal stimulus money. But he did this in such a backhanded way without first consulting with or even notifying the students who were involved in executing the program. Reporter Hannah Drown pointed all of this out in a really terrific story in January where she spoke to these heartbroken students and faculty who really felt like the district had broken its promise to them regarding that pot of money. Well, city council began beating the drum on this after after that story ran. Last week, 12 members signed a letter demanding that Morgan reinstate that money. And it appears that on some level that might happen. In in the news release that the district sent out, Morgan, they said Morgan is 100% committed to relaunching the program after he heard concerns from students, families, educators, and others. But what's unclear from this statement is how much of the money is going to be reinstated, is it going to be all $16 million or a portion of it? And and whether that program will function the way it had been, the statement said the district has learned a lot from the original program, including significant opportunities for improvement and equity in how funds are distributed. Morgan had earlier lamented that the majority of the grants that were awarded went to students at just seven schools. So will he be restructuring the program so that each school gets a portion of that money? to award each year. It's it's unclear. Sounds like he has plans on, on having those details hammered out by the end of the year. But it's also unclear how much of a problem this will create for Morgan's plan to close the budget gap and how he's going to address that. So still a lot of unanswered questions, but a big win overall for the kids who felt really let down by his initial decision. Well, I think this announcement was as clumsy as the previous. I think the smart way to do this would have been to go back to those kids who you so horribly offended and the people in the program, gather them together, have a press conference and answer all of these questions. We really have no idea what this means. We don't know if this is a one-year deal, if they're committing the whole you know, unspent money. It's just, it's a, it's a dumb way to go about it. Why not do it right and make it celebratory, get those kids standing with you all happy that it's back and tell us exactly what this means. It was clumsy when he killed it. They were so confused. He had to come back, but he only answered a couple of questions. And then the kids were all hurt because this has been taken away from them. And now it comes back and we're going to have to follow it up saying, okay, answer all these questions, please. What does this actually mean? Yes, exactly. I, I'm assuming this is all a big learning experience for him <laughs> in the start of his time as CEO, that hopefully we won't we won't see this being becoming a pattern for him but in his his communications. Part of the job though of the CEO is to be the ambassador, to be the face of the schools. And if he's not good at that, he needs to get some people around him who are because 
this could have been a big win. I mean, okay, you made a big mistake, you're owning the mistake, and it's time to celebrate that you're giving them back something. And it's it's blue. It just dropped late. You know, it, it it it's just. And again, we have unanswered questions, so we'll be back at it today. Probably talking about this again on Monday or Tuesday. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, voter turnout in August and November last year was much higher than predicted. Has that trend continued in the early voting period for the March 19th primary? Yeah, it certainly has. Through Tuesday, 37,819 Ohioans have voted early for the March 19th primary. That's more than two times the 2020 primaries when only about 15,700 cast an early vote. And this is three weeks before the election. So we've got some running room there. The absentee ballot requests did recline by about 34,000, but ballots are being returned faster, completed ballots. 10% of uh, absentee ballots have been returned so far compared to only 1.6% in the 2020 primaries. Here in Cuyahoga County, we've had 32,235 ballot requests. That's up by more than 10,000. Uh, here in Cuyahoga, 4,487 people have voted early. That's 10 times more than the only 490 did the last primary. And this is both mail-in and in-person early voting. Well, I'm glad to hear that the early ballot requests are down because we came out, our editorial board this week, highly recommending that all the independents get off the fence, get a Republican ballot and do something largely mm-hmm. about Donald Trump. Uh, and people wrote in and said, well, what about Matt Dolan? Because the two guys he's running against are major Trumpsters. And it's like, yeah, those two. But 70 plus percent of Ohio is registered independent. They have no say in who appears mm-hmm. on the ballot. And they can just by asking for the Republican ballot. So I'm hoping that the clarion call saying, please don't stay on the sidelines will result in more requests. So the next time we talk about this, we see it. The weird thing is if that happens in Northeast Ohio, we're going to look way more Republican than we actually are. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. January of 2023, the first month of legal sports betting in Ohio saw the sports books take in a staggering $1.1 billion. Laura, has the betting fever tempered? How much did they take in in January of this year? Well, we're not at a billion dollars, but Ohioans did bet $812 million, which is still a whole lot of money and would actually go really far toward fixing the airport problems. <laughs> Those betting con- companies collected about $113 million in revenue after paying out the winnings and settling the voided wagers so that Ohioans lost. That's basically what Ohioans lost, $113 million on the games in January. Revenues taxed at 20%, so the state gets $22.6 million in taxes in January. And yes, that is down, but still a whole lot of money. And most of it, like the vast majority, are on the apps. They're not happening at the brick and mortar sports books. FanDuel got 35% of all the bets placed. DraftKings had 31%. Yeah, the betting is still raging. It's just raging in a way that I think surprised everybody when, uh, when it began. I'm a little bit confused about why it dropped. Uh, from year to year, I don't. What would that have something I mean, to do with? But January last January was the very first time that Ohioans could legally bet, so it was all this pent up demand. And now they've been betting for a year; they didn't have to wait. And you know, 
I guess we did have some Browns activity in January. Yeah. Maybe people were betting on that, but it wasn't that same kind of like I've been waiting for this. And it's not as big of a gap as you think, because remember when they first started, the betting companies were giving all sorts of promotions. Oh, that's like, true. Bet $5, get $100. And there's a legal way you have to word that. But they they gave $319.5 million in promo bets in January 2023 that and just $40 million in January 2024. So nobody was getting those big uh, gifts from the gambling companies. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Connie Schultz is our very own Pulitzer Prize winning former columnist from her days at The Plain Dealer, who's been writing books in recent years. She just wrote her first children's story and it sounds delightful. Layla, what's it about and how did it come to be? The book is called Lola and the Troll, and the protagonist Lola is inspired by her own granddaughter, Ella, and the story tackles the subject of bullying. In this book, Lola is being picked on by a neighborhood bully, and she finds herself changing who she is to avoid the teasing until an ally in her life reminds her of her courage. And Pete Shakarian tells us that this has a very satisfying ending that he didn't want to spoil in the, in the story he wrote about this. But, you know, of course, Connie is a very public figure, and she's been a writer and a columnist for a very long time. She's also married to Senator Sherrod Brown. So in all of those roles, she has time and again been the target of bullies and internet trolls. And that really factors heavily into how this book came to be. After encountering a series of trolls on social media, Connie quipped to her followers that her next book would be called Tom the Troll Has Been Blocked, which is really cute. And her followers were very amused by that. But Penguin Random House editor Casey McIntyre was particularly inspired by this idea. She reached out to Connie and said, you know, how about turning that idea into a children's book? And that's how Lola and the Troll came to be. Sadly, Casey McIntyre died young of cancer just before this book was released. But Connie says that she will never speak of the book without speaking of the woman who dreamed up the idea for it. The story popped up on my screen yesterday, headed to the Sunday Arts and Life section, and I said, wait, wait a minute, why isn't this a front page story? She is our Pulitzer Prize winner. This is a big deal. And today's the first day of Women's History Month when we celebrate esteemed women of Northeast Ohio. Perfect. I'm going to catch some grief. I guarantee it because she is married to a U.S. senator in a re-election battle, and there are going to be people that accuse me of being in the bag for Sherrod Brown and putting the story in the front page. And to them, I say, that doesn't really insult me. That insults Connie. Connie is a long-standing, serious member of this community. I mean, she won the Pulitzer Prize. That's really rare. If It doesn't matter who she's married to. She'd be on the front page. So you can go ahead and send the criticism, but you have my response. Way to go, Connie. I hope you yeah. sell a lot of books. Well, and also that kind of uh, nastiness and mean-spiritedness kind of shores up the point of this book. I know. I know. I, <laughs> I mean, it's... she talks about how this re- her book re- resonates with readers of all ages because of the lack of civility that we see in society and especially on social media and, and how those platforms empower bullies to spew nastiness with impunity. So she created this character in response to that. And uh, I say they all, everyone needs to to check this out and, and take a note. <laughs> and it, it's so demeaning to say you just did it because of who she's married to when she has the record that she has, but it, it's coming. I guarantee it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Donald Trump killed a clean air rule affecting Ohio when he was president, something the EPA fully carried out after he left office. Lisa, why is the EPA reinstating the rule now? Well, they got a legal challenge from several environmental groups, but as a backgrounder, the U.S. EPA under Trump repealed what's called the Air Nuisance Rule from Ohio's 50-year-old Clean Air Implementation Plan. This rule allowed residents and the state to sue polluters who endangered public health and public safety. The repeal was finalized in November 2020 after Trump lost re-election. The EPA said that this Air Nuisance Rule was only included by accident back in 1974, and what they were doing was error correction. But they were challenged by several environmental groups, including the Sierra Club. Uh, The EPA said they failed to consider how this rule has been used to improve ambient air quality in Ohio. The reinstatement proposal will undergo a public comment period before it gets finalized or refinalized. Sierra Club attorney Megan Walkspress says she's glad that the EPA acknowledged misuse of the error correction and importance of letting citizens enforce clean air laws, but she said it was sorry it took three and a half years. But, you know, this rule repeal was backed by the Ohio Chamber of Commerce, the Ohio Manufacturers Association, the Ohio Chemistry Technology Council, the Ohio Oil and Gas Association. They said that this rule had no reasonable connection to protecting ambient air quality in Ohio. And the Ohio EPA also supported the repeal. They says this rule is not meant to be used to reach compliance with federal clean air standards. They had no comment yesterday. They say they're working on their response. We need to clean the air. A study came out recently where they're examining the brains of people who had died who had dementia, and they found clear evidence in their brains of polluting particles from pollution. It, it There's a factor that appears to happen with dementia if you live in polluted environments and with all the factories we have around here we certainly do you're listening to today in ohio that's it for a brisk friday set of discussions lots of news happening late in the week there'll be news happening next week we hope you'll come back monday and join us thanks lisa thanks laura thanks layla thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast